Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this podcast session. Today, we're talking about the RSCS Global Standards for Valuation, often known as the RegBook. My name is Charles Golding. I work in the Valuation and Investment Advisory Team as a Senior Specialist for RSCS. And my role with the RegBook is working with our global expert working group and all of the stakeholders, everyone who contributes to the RegBook to pull that information together and work with our editorial team to produce the Red Book and all of its updates. And I'm very, very glad to have with us today the chair of the RSCS Global Valuation Standards Expert Working Group, Professor Nick French. Good afternoon, everyone. It's good to be here. Uh, just to give a bit of background about myself as well, is, uh, obviously I've recently been appointed uh, some nine months ago to uh, chair this uh, new working group. We will be announcing the membership of that group sometime towards the end of January. So by the time that you, you listen to this, it may be announced. And the idea of the working group is that we are there to provide professional advice to the team at the RICS uh, related to not just the Red Book, but primarily the Red Book in its two forms, both the global standards and the UK supplement. And indeed, because it's a global committee, the relevant supplements around the world as well. As I say, we are having our first meeting of that group sometime next week as well. I'm speaking and the group will be announced at that time. But the important thing is that we're there to try to represent all of you. So everyone who's listening to this, everyone who's a valuer, and indeed those of you who are RICS members who are users of valuations rather than compilers of valuation, our purpose is to ensure that not only is the clarity and preciseness in the standards, but that they are there to support you as a membership. And as I say, although we haven't met yet as a board, that's our intent over the next few years and under my chairmanship. Thank you, Nick. And before we get into the, the detail and, and go through the line by line, uh, go through the Red Book, we could do a sort of audible version of it, couldn't we, uh, of, the, of the entire thing, I think, for the, the entertainment of our audience. But I remember when I first came across the Red Book uh, back in university many, many moons ago, it was talked of in sort of uh, hallowed, hushed tones as somehow being um, the solution to, to all of my uh, lack of valuation knowledge at that time. And it's interesting that that uh, I have a bit of a confession to make in that uh, having joined RICS in 2018, I've probably read the Red Book a lot more now than than I had done prior to joining. <laughs> I've seen it used as a, a paperweight, something that looks nice on people's desk. And I've seen people go through our new digital version of the Red Book in, in thorough detail and use it as a process tool for all of their valuation work to undertake. I just thought I'd, uh, op- you know, opening sort of discussion point is just go through what the red book is and i think it's also important what what it isn't you know some people refer it to me and say why doesn't it give me the detailed instructions on valuation technique why isn't there a, a, a sort of a spreadsheet in there which which shows me the inputs for the various elements of valuation could you just give us a bit uh you've probably got a lot more experience with the, with the red book <laughs> than i but just but the use of it practically and how it comes together and what it's for yeah, absolutely. Let's pick up on the last point first. Um, in terms of prescription, I've always had this opinion, and this was prior to me joining various committees, and that is that professional bodies, in our case, the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, are there to provide standards, which are effectively a quality assurance document to ensure that if a client goes to a, a valuer in uh, Australia or America or the UK, it doesn't matter where around the world they go, that there's a certain level of competence and professionalism and standard that would be expected of anyone who's gone through the qualification to become a, a valuer and, and latterly a registered valuer. And I think that's important. What we don't want to do is just become a document by rote. So if you have a valuation that needs to be done on investment basis, plug in these numbers into this model and you'll get the answer out. That's not what we're about. You know, the whole point of professionalism and expertise and experience is that's what needs to be brought to bear in terms of undertaking the valuation. What we do within the Red Book is provide the overall structure or framework 
under which that valuation model is taken. But you can decide whether you want to do it implicitly, explicitly, whether it's profits uh, using a discounted cash flow, whether it's profits using implicit uh, assumptions. Those are the decisions that, in my view, should rest with the valuer and should not be prescribed by any professional body or any licensing body. Remembering one of the things about our standards is that uh, in some countries, the, there are overriding requirements from government on what you should be doing in terms of valuation. And for our membership, they obviously need, if you're working in that sort of um, jurisdiction, you need to understand what it is that you have to do to conform with the Red Book and where it is that you actually have to do things differently because there is an overriding legal obligation on you by the government where you're working. But in terms of history, um, I, my history of the Red Book goes back to when, in fact, there was something prior to the Red Book, and we're very, very interested in the way we name things. Those of you <laughs> who are young may not realise, because the, uh, you only ever see this document as a PDF, where it's sort of hues of uh, cerise and uh, greys and whites. Once upon a time, it was in a vinyl red folder, and that's where it gets its name from. And the first standards I was involved in was actually the, the sister journal to that, the sister standards to that, which was, guess what colour vinyl folder that had? It was called the White Book. And one of my first involvements, and this would have been in the early 80s, so you can tell how old I am, uh, was the merging together of the Red Book and the White Book into one document. And then we've gone through a journey with this. It's been uh, changed on a number of occasions. Most importantly, I think the biggest change was when we uh, started adopting the international valuation standards. And for those of you who are not aware, what we do at the RICS is that we educate and police, in inverted commas, the international valuation standards, which are part of the Red Book. We also put them in context of the UK or Asia or, or, again, whatever jurisdiction you're in through various national supplements. But the core of the global standards is actually the international standards, which are written by a completely different group. The RICS is heavily involved in that group, in that group as, as are other, other professional, professional valuation organisations from around, around the, world. the world. But it, but it is, is a separate, separate group. group. And, and uh, I, was I was fortunate, fortunate enough, enough to be a member, to be a member of, of that, that uh, uh, committee some more well, getting on to 10 years ago now I started my tenure there uh, three-year tenure on the International Valuation Standards Council and one of our roles there when I was wearing that hat was to set the global standards for every organization around the world to choose to adopt and the RICS were one of the very early adopters and that has then evolved into this framework this structure we have now which is the global red book not word for word the same. Oh, no, I tell a lie. It is word for word repeated in there, but with additional commentary to place it in context of the RICS. But then we have these national supplements as well. I think that's a really good model. So you have the consistency at an international level, regardless of which value you go to from which professional body. But then you have the added consistency of if you're going to an RICS member, then this will be applying. And if you're going to an RICS member in different countries and you're comparing what they're doing, there are certain nuances that will change according to the jurisdiction. So, you know, the Red Book has evolved a lot. I really appreciate you going through that, that international structure there. And because, again, it's one of the uh, sort of myths that, that's thought of around the Red Book, that it still is a UK document. And of course, it is global in its scope and does adopt the international valuation standards. And the updates of the international valuation standards are one of the drivers for for how we uh, adopt the, the Red Book and how often we adopt the Red Book. But there's also all other kinds of reasons why we want to update the Red Book. I just wanted to talk briefly about the reasons for uh, update, why we update, why, why we, um, to use a, a modern word, try and be as agile as possible to adapt to markets, regulatory, and other conditions globally. Yeah, no, that, that's a really useful point. I'm going to twist it round, though. I'm going to say, if you look at the core of the Red Book from back in the 1970s, I think the, the, the first edition came out in 74 from memory, and then it's been through various iterations since. But if you look at the core there, 
some of the definitions have changed in terms of market value, for example. Once upon a time, we had something called open market value. But the principle remains the same, that it's helping to define what we're talking about. It's helping to set out a structure of reporting this to your client. And it's helping to ensure that valuations are placed in a context. And it's the context that changes over time. The business world changes constantly. I mean, uh, one great uh, philosopher once said that change is the only constant. Everything else is a variable. And that's the environment that we as valuers work in. And when we're talking about change, it could be that the accounting industry, where valuations feed in quite substantially into their business world, they make a change to one of their standards. They have things called the International Financial Reporting Standards. They make a change to that, and that impacts on what we need to do within the Red Book. So they're one of our our external, not taskmasters, because we're not at their beck and call, but we do work closely with them. And we need to be sure that when they do something, that we are also matching that so that there's as good a clarity on the particular issue as possible. So accountancy is one of the things. I've mentioned it before. Uh, in certain jurisdictions, uh, licensing and legal requirements are are one of the issues. And whilst they're more likely to be dealt with in the national supplements, we are aware of them and conscious of them when uh, looking at the global standards. And in fact, one of the things I want to pick up on here is um, how people get confused about what the Red Book is. It's technically two books. And uh, what you often find... And I'm, I've been very fortunate in my career that I've spent a lot of time going out talking to valuers around the country. And 99% of the time, I'm impressed with this, their integrity, their ability, their experience, their knowledge, all those things. I'm very proud to be a member of this uh, organization. But uh, in terms of the use of the Red Book, I actually did come across one person who said to me, oh, I only work in the UK, so I only use the UK supplement not understanding that the UK supplement has to be read in tandem with the global. So when you were talking about the Red Book, we're talking about two books or two PDFs that you must look at. And and that's one of the challenges we have is actually always trying to ensure that the, the national supplements are in the same time frame as the global changes. And that, that really is a merry dance at time. And uh, occasionally we do go out of sync between those. But you can be assured that uh, the Red Book Committee, whatever it may be called, as I say, these days, it's now the Global Valuation Standards Expert Working Group. We do try to ensure that we make changes as prudently and as quickly as possible, but with consultation. And therefore, we don't change things straight away. We make sure that we consult with the membership so we can actually pick up any things that, you know, although I think we've got a very good spread of expertise on the working group, we're not uh, all seers. We're not uh, able to capture everything. Well, this is it. Having gone through the recent consultation, the hundreds of comments we received globally from all different kinds of stakeholders, small to medium enterprise valuers, sole traders undertaking residential valuations in the local market. It might have been a a commercial surveyor in Asia undertaking fund valuations. The the range and spread of comments that we got on the most recent consultation, I just wanted to emphasize that there is always that opportunity to be a part of the feedback loop for developing the Global Red Book. And that through your expert working group, you have the opportunity to see those comments coming in globally and making sure that, that we as an organization, are listening to our our members and stakeholders to make sure ultimately that the Red Book's relevant to the work that they undertake. Yeah, no, it's exactly that. It's making sure the standards are up to date, fit for purpose, but equally the central tenants is to ensure that we identify what is reasonable to a professional valuer in providing valuations within that framework of definitions and procedures. So um, it's not an easy task. I've been involved in the Red Book, as I say, in, in various committees through my lifetime. I sort of come dip in and dip out again. But the thing that strikes me all the time is that, and this is possibly a problem with the sometimes the RICS as well. The RICS isn't us and them. You are the RICS. Everybody that is a member of the RICS should be involved with the RICS. And you know, my email is uh, readily available. LinkedIn is readily available. And we will react and uh, look at anything where people have got concerns. So whether it is a formal consultation period 
or whether it is at a point in time where you just highlight something that uh, you think needs to be looked at, we are very open to those those suggestions. I can't say we'll address everything immediately, but I can assure you we will not ignore anything. I think there's a lot of sort of future prediction that can be undertaken. And we as valuers look to markets and direction from uh, markets and intelligence and data from those. But the Red Book's going to have to adapt to these changing structures. Or how do, how do you see that developing in the future? I think it comes back to a word you mentioned earlier, which is flexibility, because COVID is a great example of an economic shock to the system. And I always put this caveat down when I start talking about COVID, because I know on a personal uh, level, it's not necessarily something that uh, should be treated with any triviality at all. So when I talk about what has happened, I'm talking about from an economic impact point of view. When we're talking about uh, personal and health impact, it, you know, we all know how terrible it's been. But from an economic shock point of view, this is not the last shock we're going to have to the, to the economic system. Things are going to change. Now, I'm not wishing this to happen, but I'll just give you a for instance. Were Russia to invade the Ukraine, there was going to be major impacts on the stock markets and uh, confidence and certainty worldwide. That would be another shock to the system. It's, it's obviously a political shock to the system rather than a health shock to the system. But the impact's the same. So what you need to have is standards in place that ensure that when a shock happens to the system, that we can react quickly to it. Because in inverted commas, normal markets are relatively straightforward. We have normal markets that are buoyant and normal markets that are poor. So ups and downs in the marketplace, that impacts on value. Valuers within the structure of the existing Red Book are very capable and very able to provide valuations on that basis. What we saw with COVID was that markets just paused, they just stopped. As soon as it was declared as a pandemic, so we're talking about uh, March 2020, as soon as that was declared, all markets around the world, not just in the UK, around the world just stopped. And nobody really knew what was going on. And I have to say, I wasn't involved directly with the RSS at that moment in time. But I was so impressed with the group that came about because of COVID, which was uh, advising on material uncertainty. It was, a, it was a group of valuers, not just from the big companies, but predominantly from the big London consultancies or the big national cons uh, international consultancies based in London. And they put out information through the RSS website on what you should be doing, when you should be using material uncertainty. And they kept on updating it. They kept on discussing it. And that was all made public. And I thought that was just a wonderful thing. And in fact, from going around the country since talking to valuers, it was well received by, by the majority of people around the UK. And I've heard also from, from around the world, although in fairness, a lot of it was UK based. So that's one example of we've got the red book and then we've got support to help people understand the red book in certain situations. And I would imagine it's all to be decided, but we'll probably try to keep structures like that in place going forward. But also in terms of why it is that the red book is so important and why it is that it needs to be flexible, I think it's because we're going into a world where there is going to be more and more regulation. If you look at what's happening in the accounting standards with the International Accounting Standards Board, uh, if you look what's happening in terms of the legal profession, the finance profession in particular, when you look at uh, the, the regulation that's been brought in over the last 10 years since the global economic crash of 2008, 2009, that sort of period, everything has been moved more and more towards regulation. Whereas in my early, I was going to say career, I was st still studying at that time, my early life, Everything was about deregulation. Margaret Thatcher came in, Reagan came in in the, in the States all about the same time, 79, 80, that sort of period. And they started deregulating everything, which meant that the world moves quicker. One, well, one thing about regulation is that it puts in place procedures to try to ensure that things that shouldn't happen don't happen. That's the point of regulation. It's, it's trying to put the market in check and ensure due diligence in the market. If you have due diligence, things take longer, quite rightly, and I think quite appropriately. If you don't, then markets can escalate and indeed 
crash much quicker. So I think we're one small cog within the regulation model right around the world. The Red Book Global and uh, National Supplements, they are helping the global economy to have this, this form of due diligence. But if it becomes prescriptive, we mentioned prescription in, t- in the sense of valuation modelling earlier, if it becomes too prescriptive, then it simply becomes a check on the market that isn't appropriate. What you want is to have standards that are fit for purpose, that are appropriate to the market at that moment in time, but more importantly, can quickly adapt or with the help of an expert group like the one that we had during COVID can be interpreted uh, appropriately and correctly during those moments of, quite honestly, for the first three months after COVID turmoil, the markets were in turmoil, they just stagnated. What we saw after that, of course, is that some of the markets picked up amazingly, logistics, residential, and from a valuation point of view at that point, we didn't have any problems in terms of valuation. There was no material uncertainty. We had more transactions. We had more information. So you didn't need to refer to material uncertainty. And again, that group actually commented on that and said, OK, at this point, I think it was September of uh, 2020, said, right, unless it's something like hospitality, which was still struggling badly, you don't need to consider material uncertainty. We've gone back to something called normal uncertainty. And that's something we can discuss in a moment as well. Thanks, Nick. In true podcast style, we've we've done uh, a lot of uh, introduction and background, which is really vital. I think it's very important to understanding the Red Book. But I think we should just uh, get on to maybe some of the, the meat of the, the major changes to the Red Book. Although, as we discussed at the top of the call, it's still it is an update that there isn't that is an evolution rather than revolution to to use a cliche we we mentioned that the international valuation standards updates form the core of the changes to to global red book i just wanted to give a quick shout out for people who attended my recent seminar where i went through every single update of ivs and it was something of 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 an epic seminar and people Really, that really were getting the faded eyes by the end of it because uh, <laughs> I, I could I could I could see people nodding off. It was a it was a video call, so I think we'll, we'll not give everyone the benefit today of a of a line by line trawl through all of the changes. But I did want to just flag the fact that on our on our website, just underneath where the global red book is now attached on our valuation pages, there is the basis for conclusions for all the recent changes. And if listeners just flip through to the appendix of that document, there for all to see is every change that's been made, including the international valuation standards changes and all of the updates following consultation as well. So just for everyone listening, if you did need to uh, reference a specific change and understand the reasoning for it, do go to that document. And uh, I'm always here as a point of contact at RSES, cgolding at rses.org for any of your queries related to uh, Redbook and this update as well. But so moving on from the uh, the IVS updates, I just wanted to talk about some of the other uh, key changes that have been made. It's a subject that's very close to my heart. I know it's close to your heart too, because I think I met you for the first time at a race course in, in the east of England. Was that in the new market conference? I think it was on minimum energy efficiency standards. And (laughs) I was very, very impressed by your advocacy on that day for greater understanding and awareness of issues related to ESG and sustainability. That was a few years ago now, but there's been a real sea change, I'd suggest, in the last year, 18 months, uh, around some of the regulation that you mentioned, government intention, market intention, around addressing ESG and sustainability. And it means that we've gone back over. There's a lot of material and sustainability in the 2017 edition of of Redbook around uh, this issue, but there wasn't a lot of awareness around it. And it's only been with this recent sort of resurgence of interest in the issue that we've been able to go back through those pages within Redbook and really start looking at referring to ESG as well as sustainability and looking at some of the steps that the valuer might take in looking at ESG and sustainability, as well as just emphasizing what's already there around what are already good practice requirements on reporting and inspection that exist on sustainability and ESG already. But I know that, that our listeners here were also very much interested in, in the how for valuers. And I'll just mention uh, as, a, as another quick plug, the guidance note that's come out alongside the uh, Global Red Book update 
which is around the valuation of commercial property and considering ESG and sustainability issues there, which again is just trying to uh, go into a little bit more detail around the issue and, and focus on some of the practical steps that a valuer can take. But there is some important principles-based material on ESG and sustainability uh, Nick, within the new Global Red Book update. I'm just wondering if you uh, had any comments on that and just on the issue more widely, given it's uh, such a focus now. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, what we're doing at the RSS is is reflecting what's happening globally in terms of the awareness of the impact of climate change. And whilst we're at the business end, if you like, in the sense of we need to look at it in terms of how does that impact on valuations, there are broader issues which actually will affect other members within the RSS in terms of investment decisions, in terms of management of assets and so on and so forth. Now, one of the things I just want to to stress is that as a profession, as the RICS used to talk about this, we only really use the word sustainability. And then globally, uh, if you went to America, for example, where I used to teach quite uh, regularly, uh, they used the word resilience, which is were there a problem with this particular property in relation to climate change or the environment? How resilient is it to change? And that would obviously impact on its value. If it wasn't resilient, it will have less value than it, it, it being re- resilient. So what we've had is a change in the terminology that we use. And you mentioned ESG, environmental, social and governance. And the point about that is that that language is coming from the corporate environment. So all of you who work for the big, large companies will know virtually every single one of you have an ESG policy. We used to have social responsibility policies uh, of the big firms. Well, that's uh, now been expanded to look at how do companies run in terms of governance, in terms of being committed to fair trade, uh, not not necessarily fair trade in the sense of the African and uh, South American fair trade issues, but fair trade in the sense of making sure you do things on a, a, a good and proper basis, but also in terms of this environmental thing. So in property terms, in terms of ESG, we probably concentrate on the E. There's a little bit that will go into social, a little bit in governments, but basically we're concentrating on the E. And within the Red Book at the moment, we're referring to that as sustainability and ESG. That seemed to be the way we're capturing it at the moment. I am certain, I have no recommendations, by the way, I'm certain that going forward, we'll find that we'll be re- using different terminology again. But ultimately, what we are asking valuers to consider is how will sustainability and environmental issues impact on this property? And this is where we get a dichotomy, because from a valuation point of view, a valuer's role is to reflect the price that will be paid for an asset in the marketplace. So if you've got a very green building that is using solar panels, that uses wind power, that has lots of the sustainability issues that feed into the Leeds and Briam ratings as well, such as you know showers, access to public transport, all those sort of things. Those are things that a valuer should be aware of. That's part of their due diligence. They should make sure that they understand that. But if someone won't pay you extra for certain things, it's not for you to say, oh, well, this building solar powered, therefore you should pay an extra X pounds on the market rent, or you should pay an extra X million pounds on the capital value. That's not your role. The role of the valuer is to say, this is what we expect the market to pay for this asset on the date of the valuation. Now, again, I'm convinced going forward that dichotomy will merge. So we'll start seeing that the market will reflect sustainability in their pricing much more. But we're at that transition point and we as valuers should be very careful that we advise our clients on the sustainability issues within the due diligence requirements of report writing, but at the same time that the valuation we provide reflects what the market would be doing at that moment in time. And I'll give you a for instance. There was an article in our um, property journal, the RICS Property Journal, a couple of years ago now, where an uh, American architect was criticising a RICS value in, um, it was in... California I can't remember the actual city now because 
they had built this lovely building which had all bells and whistles and was one of the most sustainable buildings in the area. And yet the valuers valued it at pretty much the same value as the properties that didn't have so many bells and whistles. And he said, well, that's wrong. The valuation must be wrong. And the answer is, no, it isn't. The market hadn't caught up. The market wasn't paying extra for those things that the architect thought were brilliant. And quite honestly, from a personal point of view, I would concur with the architect. But unless the market reflects that, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what he thinks. The valuer's role is to reflect the market. And in that case, the market wasn't paying a premium for those types of buildings. My guess is two years later, they probably are. Although I'm also guessing it was an office building. So the value of offices generally have fallen worldwide because of COVID and the structural change to the way that we use office space. So you can see there's always nuances involved. But I think the sustainability issue is really important. We are being driven in the UK by the stick approach, I would probably say, in terms of how do you get markets to do what the governments want them to do, this carrot and stick. So the stick approach is saying you can't do something. So the MEES regulation, minimum energy efficiency standards that uh, Charles mentioned, they're effectively the government deciding and we're waiting for an edict from the government now what their proposals are in terms of deadlines for getting up to 2030 and the targets for 2030. But these uh, minimal energy efficiency standards are, are basically saying you can't do it unless it's, you get to this standard of energy efficiency, you can't do it. It's a little bit of a blunt instrument but for investment property, I actually think it's a good instrument. But going forward to hit the targets that we're going to need to have, I can see markets right around the world are going to have to offer the carrot approach as well, which is that there will be money made available to retrofit. And unsurprisingly, that will impact on valuations as well. So in other words, what I'm saying in terms of ESG and sustainability is that doesn't matter where you are in the world, if you are doing valuations reports and ignoring ESG and sustainability, I'm not convinced that you'll be doing your job appropriately. In virtually all the markets that I'm aware of, and uh, fortunately, I'm still in contact with colleagues right around the world, ESG has become a dominant factor and will become more so, uh, not just because it's a uh, gathering moss as it rolls down the hill, but more importantly, because decision makers are changing their view of the world. And part of that is because decision makers of my generation are becoming better informed and understand things better. But it's actually probably being driven more by millennials and Z generation people where uh, sustainability is, is embedded in their, their, their way of thinking. Everything is about trying to ensure that we can meet our targets to reduce climate change. And because of that, if you're a valuer, you need to understand your client's view of ESG but more importantly, you need to understand what is the impact of that in the market. And I believe that we'll start finding more and more impact. And it's not just me. The guidance note that you mentioned earlier on, on uh, commercial property and uh, sustainability is saying exactly the same things, that this is going to become part and parcel of our daily dashboard at the, uh, at the uh, coalface to mix about seven metaphors. It's going to be very important and if you're a valuer, you need to understand sustainability. It's as simple as that. I'm really glad that you mentioned those transition risks that are now referenced in uh, VPG8 of uh, Global Red Book and effectively the obsolescence that might be in play. You mentioned the, the issue of the expected green premium from the architect's view, but also the obsolescence that may, that may come about from not being able to meet the regulatory standards. A lot of queries around where the, the role of the valuer ends and where the start the expertise of a cost consultant or an environmental assessor might come into play as well. And I think Redbook does make clear around that, that additional expertise can be sought and it is an ongoing conversation with the client as part of forming the instructions as to, as to what data is going to be used, what the responsibilities of the valuer are. But the main thing is that the valuer has a responsibility to at least consider these ESG and sustainability issues in inspection and reporting. But a, a fascinating topic and one that we know that is probably worth referencing now that global red book updates are perhaps going to be more frequent going forward to make sure that we're addressing these um, fast, fast moving market areas. Yeah, exactly that. I did want to move on to another sort of red book misconception, as it were. 
I'm sure during some parts of my career where I've been sending numbers to people in emails and on spreadsheets and in reports, I've thought that Redbook hasn't applied to me. And I might have used the term uh, exemption when I meant to use the term exception. There is sometimes a misnomer as to as to valuations being Redbook or, or non-Redbook and a bit of a misunderstanding around the difference between the PS1 and PS2 standards which cover international valuation standards, the ethics, the conduct, those issues, and then the later technical standards uh, around uh, reporting, inspection, uh, approaches and the like. And we have made some amendments to the, the section uh, within PS15 around valuation exceptions as part of this Red Book update. And that came about from inquiries from a range of different valuation purposes and stakeholders where it wasn't quite clear which parts of the Red Book people were accepted from in certain circumstances. Uh, and for just to give a few examples of, of those exceptions that they're, they're included in uh, the global Red Book and have been for, for some time are around giving expert witness evidence, negotiation in, in some circumstances, providing valuations for a, a statutory purpose in other circumstances. What the new exception changes make clear is that a valuer's role may change during the valuation process, and they need to be very, very clear whether, when, and where exceptions apply to them. But we're hoping that that through these changes and communicating them outwards, that that a better understanding exists. And the global red book actually refers to now that we want to move away from terms such as quasi red book, a bit red book, semi red book, half red book. Yeah. Not sure if it's red book or not, and perhaps just refer to valuation and valuation standards, but do make clear to the client and indeed as part of reporting where there are exceptions. What's your experience um, with exceptions and any misunderstandings you feel that there might be in this area or, or areas of work where different parts of the uh, of the red book might be more emphasized or important? Yeah, it's it's a it's a very interesting point, and it's one that, in fairness, throughout my professional career, most of which I have to say was in academia. So I was tending to look at what other people have been doing with reports as opposed to writing my own. But when I was in practice, I was with the local authorities, both uh, as a trainee and then latterly as a, a senior valuer, and. Um, I think in some ways it was that experience that uh, set my view about this, which is when you work for a local authority, and this is probably true for municipalities right around the world, but um, in the UK we have Freedom of Information Act, which means that somebody can access anything that anyone at a local authority does or records in some form. And because of that, I remember having a um, long conversation with the, the then county surveyor saying that, all our valuations should be done in accordance with the Red Book. Even if the Red Book at that time said there were exceptions, or even if someone wanted to use the word exemptions, I was saying that we should ensure in terms of good governance that everything is done in accordance with the Red Book because ultimately somebody will actually rely on this and someone will see this. It's not an internal document, which is sometimes the case with some of the exceptions that uh, you, you've referred to, negotiations, for example. And they took that on board. I won't say which county it was, but uh, they took that on board. And as I say, that that sort of set my mindset on how the Red Book should be used. Now, I do fully understand that there are occasions where you want to be able to do things and you want to do them in a way which is outside the due diligence and and in some ways just quicker than doing a red book valuation and negotiation is the perfect example uh where you're doing things on i was going to say on the back of an envelope but that dates me you're doing it on your mobile phone or, or whatever it might be and i can understand the need for that but i think they should be few and far between and i would like to see and i'm not saying this is my mandate for my t- uh, tenure as chair but I would, I'd like to see, and, and the changes that you've already made this year are a good step in that direction, that we actually move away, as you say, from saying this is a red book valuation or this is a quasi red book valuation. It's either a red book valuation or it's not. And it can be a red book valuation, obviously, within that exception, but that exception might be temporary in part of the negotiation. And then you do a valuation report. Well, obviously, the valuation report is not going to be uh, an exemption. So there's, there's nuances there. 
But I think it's a mindset thing. I think some people saw, saw them as caveats, get-out clauses, and it should never have been been like that. And I would hope going forward uh, with good communication, we'll be able to re-emphasize that. Thanks, Nick. That's, that's probably a little bit of uh, homework for anyone listening to the podcast, just to have a look at the amended definition of, of valuation within the Global Red Book and um, just refer to that exceptions detail and just think, well, hang on, if I'm exchanging numbers with, with anyone... Does this fall within that definition of valuation and, and which parts of the Red Book and these exceptions uh, should I or should I not be following? And, uh, of course, uh, checking with all colleagues who aren't listening to the podcast on that point as well. But as you mentioned, it's a it's a fast uh, developing area. Something other, it's, it's quite a small change to the to the global Red Book. But something else that I wanted to um, discuss with you today, Nick, is is around the income approach as one of the approaches to valuation. And the section VPGA4 described as individual trade-related uh, asset valuation within uh, the Global Red Book. Traditionally, that, that would have been perhaps only referred to in respect of public houses, hospitality, hotels, the leisure industry, and some other specialist industries. But I, I did a piece of work a couple of years ago, an insight report around the valuation of flexible workspace, where the income approach really had become the primary method of or, or, or primary approach sorry you'll pick me up on that uh, to valuation uh, that have been that have been under uh, undertaken and again at valuation conference uh, in working groups and in discussion with a number of valuers the income approach more and more was coming into play around purpose-built student housing uh, as another example self-storage was it was a market where where it was people increasingly looking uh, income and although the, the the changes that that might be needed to to adapt these assets might not be the same, or the planning requirements, the zoning requirements might not be the same as a hotel or leisure asset. Recognizing that there's a broadening of use around the income approach, and this is something up that's just been mentioned as uh, within uh, VPGA four now. And of course, I, I recognize some of the work that that you've done recently as well around use of the income approach in respect of retail and, and uh, turnover rents, turnover leases as well. Just a, just a comment, if you will, around the, the income approach and where this is broadening out. But I wonder if there's just a, a word of warning as well around perhaps the level of expertise that might be needed. And sometimes what happens on, on this approach is people tend to mix up what's happening with a business and what, what, what might be happening with the real estate itself and getting in a bit of a muddle about the difference between market value and worth. Yeah, absolutely. As you said, I, I, it is my duty to pick you up on uh, on definitions because uh, <laughs> uh, I, I have a very strict uh, hierarchy of uh, approaches, methods, and then models or techniques. And let me explain that. And for all of you listening, this is is just a revision exercise because you're all aware of the various approaches that are recognised by the International Valuation Standards and therefore recognised by the RICS. And, and that, of course, is the cost approach, the market approach and the income approach. Now, underneath that broad umbrella, and the broad umbrella sort of tells you what's going on. So income approach is where we are looking at valuations which rely on numbers, which rely on uh, numbers coming through from the use of that property in some form. And then you've got the cost approach, which again relies on numbers, all valuations do. But again, as it says on the tin, it's looking at the value of the property relative to how much that property would cost to build allowing for it being on probably the same site. There, is, uh, uh, there are variations where you can actually change the site, but generally the same site, and then allow for appreciation for the age of the property. So cost-related, unsurprisingly. And the third one, the market approach, is where we're looking at direct capital or rental comparison. So you're looking at what are people paying for these assets in the marketplace and residential is the classic example of that, particularly in the UK where we don't tend to look at it on a uh, per unit basis. We tend to look at it in terms of a three bedroom house sells for 250,000 or whatever the numbers might be. So when we come to the income approach, we actually are talking about three methods that sit underneath it. And the three methods are the investment method, the profits method, and the residual method. 
Now, residual method is, as the name suggests, what's left over. So it's about if you put money into something and you release latent value, how much can you pay for that asset now? Development valuations. That's what we're talking about there. And the difference that is happening in the market now is the other two methods. The investment method is where you're getting an income flow, which is in the form of a rent. And you then capitalize that rent, whether we use a, a discounted cash flow model or whether we use an implicit capitalization model. That's the next line of the, the hierarchy, which model to use. It doesn't matter. What you're doing is you're looking at a rent times a multiplier. Whereas the profits method is looking at, if I use this building as a business, what is the likely amount that I will be able to pay in terms of a rental figure? So it's it's almost a calculation that works out once you've taken out all your running costs, once you've taken out your entrepreneurial risk, once you've taken out all the payments to people who, who you need to have to employ to provide the service within the building, what's left over to pay for that building? And then you actually use the investment method underneath that as well. So it's a hybrid in, in a certain way. Now, what has happened over the last, actually, in fairness, 10 or 15 years, but pr- predominantly in the last uh, five or six years, is that we found that we've got property assets which are moving away from we will pay a rent to we will be managed as a trading operation, as an operational property is the term that uh, we try to use. And that might be, as you said, student housing. It might be uh, storage space. In other words, the business and the property are intrinsically linked. And yet we as valuers of property need to work out what applies to the asset and business valuers at the same time will work out what applies to the business side. Now, I personally believe, and again, there was a wonderful article by a colleague, I can't remember her, uh, their name, but from the Chinese market, I think it was, sometime mid mid last year, talking about valuations. And it was, in the, again, the property journal, I'm pretty certain. And she was saying, I think it was a she, she was saying, we are going to, as a profession, have to learn the skills to be able to do valuations of property alongside business and possibly, as again, to use that word, a hybrid, where we've actually got the interlinkages so close together, it's difficult to distinguish the property element from the business element. And to do that, boy, do we need new skills. And in fairness to valuation surveyors around the world, a lot of us are working with colleagues who have got those new skills. And let me give you a for instance. If you're doing a valuation of a hotel, I don't know of many valuers that value hotels that haven't got experience themselves of running hotels or working in the hotel industry or don't work with colleagues who have that experience. In other words, we've got property experts working side by side with hospitality experts. And I've been doing some work recently on shopping centres and the valuation of shopping centres. And the shopping centres are moving towards becoming an operational asset. Outlet centres are already there. Outlet centres are a wonderful example of where the business and the properties are so interlinked that you simply cannot undertake valuations of outlets without having knowledge of how retailers work. So I think that is going to be a big challenge going forward. In terms of where does that fit within the red book, again, it's down to flexibility. So the red book is highlighting these issues, as you've said, but at the same time isn't being prescriptive and saying you must do this and this and this because the market will develop those skills and the information requirements to actually undertake those valuations in those way. But yes, we as valuers are evolving. And there will be some people who will never do those types of valuation and will do the more traditional investment valuations, office rent times a multiplier. But even in the office market, I think we'll find changes and offices will become different in the way that they they are actually operated. We'll have other provisions within the office space in terms of hospitality, in terms of well-being, in terms of just the function of the building, how it's used, which may move it towards an operational base as well. So it's going to be interesting times going forward. But I do think, you know, as a profession, as a valuation profession, we're actually well placed as long as we accept our limitations and know when to ask, well, actually, we need a retail expert now. We need to know what a retailer would make 
from this space so we can work out what rent they would be willing to pay for that space. Thanks, Nick. We talked uh, at the start of our conversation, we, we, we talked about the, the background to uh, the development of Redbook and some of the structural changes that are occurring in markets and driving changes to the Redbook in the last uh, 18 months and now. But just for the final part of the podcast, I wanted to look at sort of what the future holds. And there's been an important piece of work published recently that, that that's going to give us perhaps something of a steer around that future. Last week, the the review of uh, real estate investment valuation was published. It had been produced a series of 13 recommendations to the RICS Standards and Regulation Board. And the RICS Standards and Regulation Board have put out a, a statement, initial statement about how they're going to, uh, having accepted those recommendations, how they're going to look to implement them in the future. And so without wanting to sort of uh, jump the gun as to what the Standards and Regulation Board might ultimately recommend. Within that valuation review, there's some really, really interesting conversations about the future of valuation and about how our standards look now. And I just wanted to, to reference a, a couple of those. And the first of those recommendations was, was the one that looked into the use of discounted cash flow and what's described as more sophisticated analytical approaches to valuation referencing scenario testing, sensitivity analysis as well. Tasking with valuers are perhaps looking at valuation in a more sophisticated way, but I think a crucial word that's in the report is looking at it in what we as valuers describe as a more explicit way as well, explaining to the client through our, our reporting and the valuation itself how the different adjustments assumptions are made and, and ultimately what what makes up both the end valuation figure and the and the subtotals uh, along the way have you had an opportunity to look at the the valuation review report and do you see any crossover with with redbook itself uh, and, and indeed valuation uh, the answer is yes. I spent a whole day last week reading the whole report, <laughs> and uh, fortunately, the RICS response was only four pages, so that was much easier to read. And, and I, I want to say right from the off, I, I totally support the response from the Standards and Regulations Board that they are going to adopt the, the recommendations, the 13 recommendations. In fact, there's, if you like, there's 14 because one of them is an A and a B, but it's going to accept all the recommendations in the whole and our role now is to, as the RICS, as the body of the RICS, is to determine how do we actually adopt those recommendations and what's the best way of implementing those those uh, uh, suggestions. And looking at it, it's roughly 50-50. I think 50% of those recommendations are about governance. They're about uh, ensuring um, independence of valuers, which will probably be well it will be part of the red book in a way but it will actually need to be set up in a different way it's it's new structures within the RICS is my, is my view it's it's hard to say oh that one's that and that one's that because everything's interlinked but j- just as a rough guide i reckon 50% of those recommendations will have a direct impact on the red book rather than an indirect one and i think that's great a couple of things i want to stress one the report is only about investment valuation so that's uh, that would exclude valuations of, of um, on the cost approach, for example, probably in in a UK context. In the international context, that's not necessarily the case. A lot of investment properties abroad, particularly in some of the uh, Balkan states where I've been involved quite a lot, they use the cost approach to value investment. So it's not as cut and dry as it's got to have the word investment in it. It's got to be set in the uh, the context of the jurisdiction in which you're undertaking the valuation. But anyway, the point is in terms of the impact on the Red Book and what you just said about the use of more explicit discounted cash flow, I think what we need to understand, and in fairness, it's it's understood within the report, is that ultimately what we're doing with the valuation is trying to estimate its price in the marketplace. The question then becomes what model, and I talked about that earlier, do we use implicit models or explicit models? And those two terms, again, do what they says, says on the can, because an implicit model will give you the valuation, will say what the price estimation in the marketplace is, but then doesn't give you that much more information. 
It's a heuristic. We tend to use uh, analyze it using net initial yield. And in the UK, we use something called the all risk yield. But internationally, it's the capitalization rate. Whereas an explicit model takes the same valuation and the model you choose should not change the value of the asset. What you're doing is changing the way in which the valuation is undertaken. And as the name suggests, providing more information on what the inputs into that valuation are. They've been made explicit. And that's all that it's been made reference in the report to DCF. Actually, it should have that word explicit in front of it because all valuations are discounted cash flow. It's just whether you do it implicitly or explicitly. But if we're going to move towards explicit DCF, I think the there are, there are challenges. The challenges are that you need to have a better handle on what target rates of investors are. With the implicit model, we're just looking at the marketplace. We're saying that net initial yields suggest people are paying 20 times the rent for this type of property. With my understanding how the markets move since I've looked at those comparables, those comparables of last week, two years ago, whatever they might be, my professional judgment is that we need to adjust the all risk yield, the capitalization rate by X percent, 0.01 or whatever it might be. So the advantage of the implicit model is it's a heuristic model that is taking prices from the market and then applying those prices with suitable adaptation to price the asset you're now valuing. Uh, I'm going to pause at one point here because one of the things that I always get annoyed about is that some users of valuation say, oh, but that's all backwards looking. It's not. When you buy an asset, you're buying the future. So if you analyze what people have paid for an asset, you're analyzing the future. If you only ever used exactly the number of yesterday, two weeks ago, two months ago, that would be wrong unless the market's completely stagnant. But if you take that and then it informs you on what you think the all risk skill, the capitalization rate should be going forward, in other words, today or the date of the valuation, that then is pricing the asset in the market, allowing for future expectations. They're built in there. They're implied. So that, that's my little rant to the side. But um, the point is that an implicit model is doing the same as an explicit model. The advantage to the client of an explicit model is that they will be able to relate the inputs to what they think the asset might be worth. Now, worth is a different concept. Worth is the supplementary question. So valuation is what is the price in the market? Worth or in terms of definitions, we call that investment value, open brackets worth in the red book, is should I pay that price for it? It's it's an individual, it's a subjective viewpoint rather than a market objective viewpoint. And because of that, if you provide information to the client that's saying, well, I've looked at this and I'm suggesting growth of this amount on the rental, or and I'm suggesting an exit yield, an exit yield being what will I sell it for in 10 years time? I think that's a reasonable period for a discounted cash flow explicit model. What should that number be? Then clients, investment clients can compare that to their own view of the world, which then helps them understand the distinction and the balance between what the price is in the market and what it is worth to them within their portfolio. And I think that's going to be a really useful addition. It's going to help us get rid of the confusion in the market or between investment value worth and market value price. Uh, because with all the due respect to the marketplace, there are, it's the constant, whether I'm talking to banks, investors, whoever, I get this comment. And this happened during COVID. It was reported on the RSS website last, uh, uh, no, uh, 2020. What we had was lots of clients coming back saying, oh, the valuation that you've just made of the retail properties, which were struggling really badly, cannot be correct because I'd never sell it at that price. And that's a complete misunderstanding. Clients never complain if you say the value of your property is now 20% higher than you thought it was. You never get a complaint. You only get complaints when it's down. And I think that's a, uh, this, this whole review centers around that. What it does is it's an opportunity to us to ensure greater clarity and greater provision of information from valuer to client. But it's also an opportunity to have a greater 
conversation with the client so they understand the distinction between price and worth. And you know, hopefully, as part of the Global Valuation Standards Expert Working Group, trips off the tongue so easily now, hopefully I'll be able to, to help make sure that that is, is taken forward. As I said at the very beginning, the fact that the RICS through the Standards and Regulation Board have already said that this is what we're going to do, I think is so wonderful and laudable. Uh, the report itself, I think, is fair, reasonable, and br- highlights some really important points. So yes, I, I, I think this is going to have impact on the Red Book over the next year, two years, three years, and other parts of the RICS going forward. And I think it should only be uh, applauded. I think it's a good piece of work that uh, we can work with the the mar- industry and the market to provide a better service. I think what, and this was recognised in the report, the RICS over the last 10 years have already put in place lots of things. And the Red Book is one really big, important part of that to ensure that we provide good service to our clients. But I think that there is, from these recommendations, little nuances, little areas where we can actually improve again. And that ultimately come back. We've come full circle to my first comment. At the end of the day, what we want is to have a framework which helps our members provide the best service possible to our clients. Thank you, Nick. And although uh, as, naturally, as value as we've focused on the the techie bit there, uh, the review chair does make clear that that it comes as a as a package of recommendations, and that they do include ones that relate to our professional assurance side as well as our valuation standards as we discussed today and these are changes that that our standards and regulation board will look at uh, coming towards the future but just from an RSS perspective giving everyone confidence that the um the global red book update that that was just published uh, at the end of November and becomes uh, effective from the end of uh, January 2022 is effective is in place and is ready and hopefully able to, to suit the needs of, of the valuers and the clients going forward. I will just drop my email address again, cgolding at rscs.org. If you have any questions about the Global Red Book or any of the national supplements, the UK supplement or our guidance notes, any queries do raise them with me. And another just quick plug around the basis for conclusions that sits alongside the Global Red Book. If you, if you did want to get into the weeds around the details of the recent updates and, and why why they've been undertaken. Nick, I'll, I'll leave it to you to have the last word around the, the, the global red book. Thank you. And, and thank you to everyone who's been listening. Uh, we hope it's been useful to you to place everything that uh, is going on at the RICS, particularly with the red book into context. Charles gave out his email address. Mine is rics at nickfrench.org.uk. And as I say, more than welcome to uh, receive emails that uh, highlight any issues you might be having. Uh, I I say the same every time I do conferences, by the way. And uh, every every conference, I then get somebody sending me their actual consultancy project, hoping that I do that for them. That's not on offer. But in terms of your input into how the Red Book evolves, and to use a, a terminology which seems to be the, the norm for the Z generation now, once upon a time, everything was just something that happened. Now everything is a journey. And the Red Book is a journey in the sense of it's evolved already from its uh, humble origins back in 74, 1974. It will evolve again during my um, my lifetime and beyond. And you are the RICS. You're at the coalface. You're involved in the valuations, either in terms of being a valuer or a, a client of valuations. And although we've got lots and lots of information that's come out of that valuation review, individual comments that come into us will be treated in exactly the same way and taken very seriously, and we will respond. All I would say in terms of the the, the updates, we say they come fairly regularly and I'm pretty certain there will be fairly big changes next year because I know that the IVSC, the International Valuation Standards, are likely to change quite substantially next year and we will therefore need to change the Red Book accordingly. But uh, in terms of individual comments that we get from you, it may take a while for those to actually get some traction. We we will not ignore things. We may even actually have answers already. Often that we, the guidance notes that we have, and Charles mentioned the one on sustainability and commercial valuations that has just come out, they have nuggets of information in there which are there to, to supplement and support the Red Book. They're not mandatory. They're there for information purposes. 
they are really useful documents. So if you're if you're not already going to the RISS website and looking at all the various guidance notes, I recommend that to you because they're really set out very nicely there now. Uh, just f- go to the valuation section and you've got a PDF version of the Red Book, PDF versions of the supplements that apply to your uh, jurisdiction. And then more importantly, given what I've just said, lots of access to the current guidance notes uh, and information papers. Charles will correct me. I think we're going through a process of changing the names of some of these things uh, to insight papers and stuff like that. And there's going to be a hierarchy of, of what our publication documents are. But from a user's point of view, just go and look at them. They're really, really useful. And with that, I will say thank you very much as well and uh, join you for another podcast sometime next year, I'm sure. 